This morning, if you would open your Bible to the Gospel of John with me, we are uh, in the 18th chapter this morning, the fourth book in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to examine verses 1 through 14. Uh, here at Spring Hill, our usual practice is to systematically consider a book of the Bible in its order. And this morning, we will begin with prayer. We will then read the passage under consideration, and then we'll divide the text and make some observations and applications along the way. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to this hour, this hour of troubling times. We ask for your grace upon us as we consider the Holy Scriptures. We ask for the Holy Spirit to superintend our study. We ask that he would illuminate our minds to understand the Scripture we might know how to think about the days that we live in. We ask that you inflame our hearts to have a love and a passion for the people that you put into our lives, Lord. We ask that you move us willingly to embrace the days ahead according to your kingdom purposes. We pray for all who gather in your churches throughout the region this morning. Would you revive the church this morning that gathers at Baker Creek? We ask, Lord, that you would anoint Pastor Dax teaching this morning. May the power of the gospel be evident in their church and among us this morning. Father, we ask for your comfort for the church in Ukraine. We ask that that church be a powerful witness in this time of trouble and tragedy for them, Lord. Would you, Lord, we ask, thwart the evil deeds and plans and turn the hearts of the leaders in those nations toward your purposes, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So I didn't plan on saying this, but I'm going to say it. Is uh, <clears throat> any of you who uh, ever played golf with somebody who doesn't know how to play? Me. Um, so if you play golf with somebody who knows how to play, they kind of start the game by saying, hey, are we like doing mulligans here? Right? They start off with, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. And so can we, can we start off with that? Well, I say that to say this this morning, that I've been ill for a few days and it is, I am not in my normal uh, amount of preparation this morning. So if you would bear with me, give me a mulligan if I need one. Uh, if, if I do such a horrible job this morning, I'll come back and preach the same message next week, you know, until you're ready. But anyway, yes. So anyway, as we think about this text this morning, one of the things I want us to think about is that things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. In this life, things are not as they seem to us. What, what seems good to us is sometimes tragic. What often appears tragic to us is sometimes God working out his glorious plan. And so here we enter this scene. The hour has come. The hour has come. In a short time, Jesus will be arrested. He will be tried illegally. He'll be mocked and humiliated, scourged, beaten to the point that he would not resemble a human being. He will be hung upon a cross and die a horrific death. The sins of all of God's people would be accounted to him. The wrath of God would come upon him and him alone to bear. The God of heaven would turn his face away. And this would all take place with Jesus knowing this, what Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So we enter this garden at night. It's a dark time. And of course, for the disciples, seeing Jesus who had taught them and been with them and loved them was about to be arrested and taken. For them, this moment is tragic. This is a tragic moment. But for us, when we read this passage, I want us to see that this is not a tragic moment, but this is actually a moment of victory and triumph. What appears to be tragic in our humanity, in God's economy and in God's way, this is a triumphant moment. From the hand of God, tragedy would come would come to Jesus. Jesus will come to this hour of tragedy, but he comes boldly and he comes triumphantly. He will gladly take from the hand of God the cup of wrath reserved for him rather than to take from the hand of the world a cup that provides only temporary blessing. From the hand of God, Jesus has been given a people. He's been given a people chosen for redemption. And Jesus gave them the words that God gave him. Jesus gave them his name. Jesus gave them saving knowledge of God. Jesus has given them eternal life. Jesus has given them faith. Jesus has told them, I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus has given them his glory. Jesus has given them a right standing before the throne of Almighty God. Jesus has united them in the same loving relationship that he has with the Father. 
Jesus has given them an assurance of their perseverance. Of those whom the Father has given him, Jesus says, I have lost not one. Jesus has promised to give them a helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given them abundant goodness from the hand of God, hasn't he at this point? Jesus has given his people, his disciples, just abundant goodness from the hand of God. And yet, in 1633, what does he tell them? In this world, there will be trouble. So this made me pause and ask myself this question, and I, I, I hope that you guys ask this question of yourselves, but is there anything that comes to us in the world, that comes to us in our lives, that is outside the sovereign will of God? How you answer that question will determine how you respond when you lose a job. How you uh, think about and answer that question will, will be how you respond when you're, when you're old enough that you remember that so many of your friends have died. How you respond to that question will be how you respond when you're hated in your school or when you're hated in your workplace without cause or a reason. Is there anything that comes to us in the world that is outside the sovereign will of God? How you answer this question will affect whether you choose to cheat to keep a job. If you're given a choice between cheating and keeping your job, you go, this job loss is a threat to me, but it comes from the will of God, from the sovereign hand of God. Will you choose to cheat or will you choose to take what God has given you? Will you take the root of the world to avoid discomfort or will you know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose? See, there's a great theological principle that's on display in our passage this morning that, that takes what we in our humanity might understand as an hour of tragedy and at the same time, it becomes an hour of triumph. James Boyce puts it this way. He says, it is, it is always better, always better to have the cup that comes from God's hand, no matter what it contains, than anything else, however desirable, from the hand of another. Think about that. It is always more Better to have the cup that comes from God's hand, no matter what is in his hand, to trade that for what comes from the hand of anyone else. But because of our human frailty and because of our sinful condition of the world we live in, many things that come from the hand of God will appear and feel in our humanity as troublesome. From a human perspective, some things that come from the hand of God might seem burdensome. Some things will seem way too much to bear. Some things will war against our sense of fairness, won't they? My son, who's 20, when he was, you know, in his teens, 13, 14, fairness was a big deal. Everything had to be fair. It had to be just right and just perfect. Right? And I had to explain to him time and time again. What you get is what you get. What they get is what they get. That's fair. It's fair. You just, it's not equal. 
but it's fair. It is what you get. I had to teach him that over and over again. I don't think he lives in that place much anymore, but he, when he was a young man, it was a, it was a hard thing to, for him to understand. Jesus, not only did he tell his disciples that there would be trouble, but he says, be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Now I would ask us this question, and, and as I've been studying Revelation uh, uh, every week as well, there's, there's this thing in the book of Revelation that really just captures me. It, it's this notion, who is able to stand? It's a big question. Who is able to stand? Who's able to stand? Who amongst us is able to stand? I want you to be confident that you are able to stand, that you have been made able to stand. But how do you stand? You stand in faith. You stand by faith, by trust in what Jesus has done, trusting that what comes from the hand of God is good and it is for us. Not only will there be trouble, but be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. And who is it that overcomes like Jesus? It is you who stand against what the world offers. That's how you're able to stand. By the way, the world offers you this. God offers you this. And you in faith take what God has, leaving what the world has behind. And when trouble comes, you're able to stand. You're standing in faith. You're standing in what God has given to you. What does it mean to stand? I think what it means to stand really is to persevere, to remain faithful all the way to the end, till his return, till his coming. Will you be able to stand? Yes, you will. Take from God's hand all that he offers you. And it might cause you a little bit of pain. But stand in faith, trusting that what he gives you is good. You stand against the world and and you stand what it, uh, against what it offers, and you stand by faith, taken from the hand of God, whatsoever He gives, trusting this, that He works all things out for good to those who are the called, those who are called according to His purposes. So let's look at the nefarious plot a little bit of what's going on here in John 18, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus has come to Gethsemane. He's come to the garden. In the Synoptic Gospels, Mark Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, we get some detail about what Jesus was doing there that we don't get here. We get that this was his normal practice to do with his disciples was to break away. But what he was doing there, he was praying. He was praying with them as was his custom. See, the hour had come, an hour of trouble. And this is an hour of trouble that you and I have no inkling about how to compare it to the troubles that we face. We have no idea. The weight of this hour upon Jesus. Think about the weight of the world's sin that would soon be on him. The full weight of every sin that you and I have committed and the 
combination of all of God's people have committed coming at him, on him at one moment. Think about that, about the weight of that. Jesus' prayer in Matthew 26 says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And he asked them to remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And in Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is a heavy, heavy moment. Not only that, there's this nefarious plot of Judas to portray Jesus. And this hour that had come upon him, Ju Judas had spent years with Jesus. Jesus had shown him his love, had taught him his words that the Father had given him, had shown him the glory of God. And he would turn him over to these who come to arrest him, betraying him with a kiss. Judas would rather take silver from the hands of men than to take eternal life from the hand of God. Think about that. Judas would rather take silver from the hands of men than to take eternal life from the hand of God. Now, here they come to the garden. The officers have come for Jesus in the dark of night in the garden. They come with lanterns and they come with torches. They're supposing that he is a criminal. They're treating the king of the universe like a criminal. They've come to take him. When we pray, when the trials of life are pressing in on us, as what was happening was pressing in on Jesus so much that he was sweating blood, right? This moment was coming. It was pressing on him. When those happen to us and we go and we go to a quiet place and pray and we can't see anything good coming from the situation that we're in. We pray for relief from debt, for example, and, and while we're yet praying, another bill collector knocks on the door. You pray for the return to health, and while you're praying for your return to health, all of a sudden you notice you've got another symptom. You pray for a restored relationship, and while you're praying, you get a text from that person saying the relationship is over. What if your prayers are not answered? What if your prayers are not taking away any struggle or strife or problem that you have? What if you don't get what you think you want or deserve as you're praying as these things? How you will, will you respond to that hour? Will you say it is better to take from the cup of God whatever this is that you've got for me? I know and trust that you are good and that you're doing good for me. I'll take this cup rather than take the easy way out? Or will you cower? Or will you take a, the solution uh, from the hands of those who are worldly? Well, in this hour, when Jesus prays and he's pressed, if the only way to do this, Father, he says, is for me to drink of this cup, then your will be done. There's any other way. Take that away. 
But he's convinced in his prayer that the father is not going to take the cup, that the father's going to give him the cup, and that it's his to take, and it's for him. Well, let's look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, said to them, Whom do you seek? I probably think this is like the best verse in this whole passage. Here Jesus is pressed, hard pressed about what's going to happen. And does he, does he go and wait for them and make them look for him and find him behind a tree or in the deepest part of the garden? No. What does Jesus do? Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? He confronts the darkness. He is the light of the world. And the darkness will not overcome it, right? He steps in and says, I am the light. Who is it that you seek? Boldly, confidently, triumphantly, whom do you seek? You see, the dark of night had come, but Jesus emerges from prayer, resolved to take from the hand of God and boldly face this hour. Jesus, the light of the world, indicates the confrontation with darkness. Whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Jesus in the dark of night is the light that is not overtaken by darkness. He is the authority of heaven and earth. You seek me and I am he. But see, Jesus is confident in something. But you can only take me because it is the will of the Father to give me into your hands. He's not passive here, right? Sometimes we can read this passage and think he passively allows them to arrest him. No. He boldly confronts them with his own authority. Whom do you seek? Well, Jesus matters. I'm he. I'm the one. And as we notice, we should notice what happens to them as he says this. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They were in the presence of the authority, right? Jesus Christ, the authority of the world, the God of the universe, boldly confronts them. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. Bam! They take him only because the Father willed it and gave him into their hands. And Jesus is boldly asserting his authority in this moment. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And Jesus said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. You seek me and I am he, but you can only take me because it is the will of the Father to give me into your hands. And in this tragedy, in this seeming hour of tragedy, here is the great triumph. Jesus steps in the gap. I am he, leave these alone. He steps in the gap for them. Should they have been arrested? Certainly. Should they have been punished? Should they have received the wrath of God upon them for their sins? Certainly. 
But here's the victory. Here is the moment of triumph. Jesus says, I am He. Leave them alone. And here's the, the, the assurance that comes. I've not, I've not lost one and I'm not going to lose one. Any one of them that are mine, they are mine. And I'm not losing any of them. It's, it's like Jesus saying in this gap, these are mine and if a price is to be paid, I'm paying it. If a price is to be paid for all of these, you leave them alone and take me. I am the only one who can pay the price. And I am paying the price and this comes from the hand of my Father who gave it to me. This is the cup He has given to me. This is a triumphant moment. This is a glorious moment in what appears to be darkness in our humanity, right? If we're sitting there, we are people who have walked with Jesus for three plus years and we're there in this moment. It's got to be a tragic moment for the disciples. How horrible it is, the man they loved, the one who loved them, the one who taught them everything uh, about God and knowing who the Father was and they've received this knowledge and they've received this blessing from Him and He's going away. They're going to arrest him. How tragic. What a tragic moment. But this is a moment of triumph. This is Jesus triumphing, triumphantly entering into this moment and boldly, boldly declaring who he is. I ask us this. In these evil days that we live in, who will step into the gap for the unborn? Who will say, not these? Who will say, I love them? Who will step in the gap for them? Who will stand up for the truth in a world full of relativism? Who will take the cause of the trafficked little girl around the world who's being passed off and passed around? Who will stand up for her? Will the church step in the gap? Will the church be the one that steps in the gap knowing the cost? knowing how much it costs us? Will the church drink from the cup and take from the hand of God, even if it costs us a position at work? Will the church take from the hand of God, even if it costs us a relationship? I remember, again, my son, he's not here, so I can talk about him. But he's about 14, and he's, he's uh, dating a girl, and I'm trying to help him navigate this whole situation, and it's not going well. And, and, and he's, he's fighting me left and right. But I sit in the car with him, and I said to him, I said, this is how much I love you, son. I am so willing to get in the way of your fun that you will not like me. And I'm okay with you not liking me because I love you enough to get in your way. Right? I'm going to step in the gap for you. I'm going to step in the place where you can't step and you can't, you can't fight. You don't know how to fight this battle. I'm going to help you. I'm going to get in your way and I will get in the way of your fun. Of course, it drove him to tears and he didn't like it. And he didn't much listen. It took him a few years to grow out of that. But anyway, he didn't much listen. But it's this idea of are you willing, are you willing to stand for God are you willing to take what God has given you, even if it costs you a relationship? Because it can. Will you stand in the gap, even if it costs you your very life? We have this great treasure in Jesus, don't we? And I remember when I was a young guy, I used to think 
because it sort of was taught to me really poorly, I think, was that if you are in Christ, then all of a sudden, you don't have any troubles. Everything's going to be rosy and peachy, and God loves you, so he would never bring anything tough your way. Well, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And it goes on further to say, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are eternal. It's having an eternal focus on the things that God gives us, right? God gives us good things for his eternal purposes. The world gives us shiny things that we like to grab a hold of. And we think them pleasant. And what do they turn out to be usually? Uh, to our demise most of the time. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, in his enthusiasm, fights the only way he knows how, right? In his enthusiasm, let's fight fire with fire, right? They're coming to take my Lord, I'll cut his ear off. But there's an appointed time to fight, right? There's there's an appointed time to fight. And according to God's way, though, Jesus says there's an appointed time to fight. There's a way to fight, and we fight God's way, Peter. See, this battle is bigger than you think. I'm doing more than being arrested here. I'm on my way to make atonement for your sin. There's a bigger battle going on here, Peter. Put the sheath away, he says. The Father has placed victory in my hand, and he has chosen this way for me. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He's saying here, I could destroy all of those who come after me. I could rid myself of this problem. But shall I not take the cup that the Father has given to me? This is what he's given to me. I've been appointed to this hour. In your worship folder, I think my outline says that Jesus is bound for judgment. That's not really what I mean. I've changed it in my own mind. Jesus is bound for glory. They bind him to bring him to glory, right? It seems like a dark moment, but he's bound to bring, he's being brought to glory. He's 
being led to glory, right? You might remember when we were studying the Gospel of Mark some years ago that uh, I said then, and I say it now because the, the Scripture really bears this out, that the road to glory is paved with suffering. The road to glory is paved with suffering. Jesus is paving the road to glory, right? Through his suffering for us. The Father's placed this victory. So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews, they arrest Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I don't, you know, he doesn't know what he's saying, but what he's saying is the truth, isn't it? It would be expedient. It's expedient. It's for your good that one man would die for our sins. The perfect sacrifice. When we look at this passage, we see this, what uniquely John does that the other gospel writers don't. The other gospel writers call it Gethsemane. But John here calls this place the garden. Come to the garden. And Jesus turns the whole garden picture from Eden on its ear here. He turns it upside down. Because think about what it was like in Eden. Everything was perfect. It was delightful. It was beautiful. It was a moment of glory, right? It was a triumph of all that God had done. And Eden was delightful. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, all is terrible. They've come after Jesus. In Eden, in, in Eden Adam, he conversed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the second Adam sought the Father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquers. In Edom, Adam fell before Satan. And in Gethsemane, the soldiers fall before Christ. In Eden, humanity was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, I've lost none. I've lost none. They're all mine. I've, I've taken all of them. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. And that was troublesome, wasn't it? In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from the Father's hand. In Eden, Adam blames. In Gethsemane, Jesus says, Whom are you seeking? It is I. Right? In Eden, God sought Adam, and he couldn't find him. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, the sword, the sword was drawn. As you remember, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But Jesus is the way to life. And what does he say in verse 11? He says, Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Victory is mine. The garden is restored. It's all restored in me. I'm going to glory. This is triumph. 
This is not tragedy. This is victory. As we think about that passage, I want us to really contemplate those things. What would you deny receiving from the hand of God? Will you take whatever it is that God offers you? Whatever it is. Say, from the hand of God, this is, this is what you have for me. I kept thinking as I've battled this illness this morning, and we were praying this morning, thank God that he brought me this illness today. I'm thanking him because I'm weak. I'm, I'm beaten down. I have nothing to give. But I'm thanking God for this moment because it's a moment that God can use. I'm yours. Use me. As broken and horrible as I feel, do it. I am here. I'm going to take from your hand whatever it is that you have given me. I pray that we will be those who take from the hand of God what he gives us. And, and he, he, what has he given us when we look at this world? It's a pretty dark hand if you look at what's going on from a human perspective. People are think upside down about their biology and deny it, deny their creator and what he has created them to be. There's war everywhere. People are oppressed. Uh, children are trafficked left and right in our country, right in front of our eyes. People of high Social standing are the ones doing it. Will we be the people who, like Jesus, say, I'm standing in the gap. I'm going to stand for them. I'm going to stand for them, even though this is going to cost me a lot. We'll be those who, who, who stand in relationship and say, I love you enough to tell you this and to help you with this, even if you don't like me. Even if you don't like me, I'm going to tell you this because I love you enough to tell you this. And if you don't like me for it, I'm willing to lose this relationship to gain your soul. I'm willing to lose your relationship if I gain your soul. Will we be those kinds of people? Will we be like Christ?